Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, all. Thanks to everyone for buying my book and sending me such nice notes and tweeting such nice things about it. And also for being so congratulatory about my news about who I believe the Dow attacker is. I've had a really wonderful whirlwind of a first week as a book author, and I was so glad to be able to enjoy most of it at in-person events, which was super fun and also got to personally thank some sources who helped me with the book. I just wanted to give you a heads up about more in-person events that I'll be doing in case you want to get your book signed or in case you just want to say hi. So New Yorkers, on Wednesday, March 2nd, yes, that is the day after this podcast episode drops, at 7 p.m., I will be doing a reading and signing moderated by Coindesk's Christine Lee at The Strand Bookstore. Again, that's Wednesday, March 2nd, the day after this episode drops, and it's at 7 p.m. at The Strand. As of this moment, tickets were close to selling out, so if you're on the fence, I would get one now. The link to the event is in the show notes. For folks in the Bay Area, on Tuesday, March 8th, I'll be doing a reading and signing at San Francisco's Commonwealth Club, moderated by The Information's Kate Clark. Doors open at 5.15, the program begins at 6, and the book signing is at 7 p.m. For people in Seattle, I'll be doing a reading and signing as part of Town Hall Seattle on Wednesday, March 9th at 7.30 p.m. at The Forum, moderated by Steve Scher of Town Hall Seattle. So again, a quick recap, I will be at The Strand in New York City on March 2nd at 7 p.m. I will be at the Commonwealth Club of San Francisco on Tuesday, March 8th, and I will be in Seattle at The Forum on Wednesday, March 9th. Check out the show notes to buy tickets. And now, on to the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, a journalist with over two decades of experience. I started covering crypto six years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. This is the March 1st, 2022 episode of Unchained. Welcome to a new world of crypto-friendly banking with Cross River Bank. Request your fiat on off-ramp solution now at crossriver.com slash crypto. Buy, earn, and spend crypto on the crypto.com app. New users can enjoy zero credit card fees on crypto purchases in the first 30 days. Download the crypto.com app and get $25 with the code Laura. Link in the description. This episode of Unchained is brought to you by Beefy Finance, the multi-chain yield optimizer. Beefy is the easiest way to earn more from your crypto. Deposit funds into Beefy's secure vaults to auto-compound yields across 12 blockchains. Got crypto? Choose Beefy. Today's guests are Christoph Jensch, Lefteris Karapetsis, and Griff Green, all formerly involved with Slocket and the DAO. 
which takes up two months of Ethereum's history and yet is about a full third of my book. <laughs> Welcome, Christoph, Lovteris, and Griff. Thank you. Hey, thanks for having us. Hey, thanks. So we are going to discuss what is easily the biggest event in the book and in my opinion, in Ethereum's history, and that is the DAO attack on Ethereum and the DAO in general. And we will try to do our best not to give too many spoilers and stick to kind of more publicly known information. But for those of you who find this episode interesting, you should definitely check out my book, The Cryptopians, which came out last week. So first, let's start with each of you saying what <laughs> thanks griff yes oh yes i also have my cut yes why don't we do an ad right now <laughs> so let's each of us go or e each of you go around and say what your involvement had been in ethereum and what your involvement was in the dow at the time that this event starts which is kind of like late 2015 early 2016 and why don't we start with you christoph because i think you're, you're really the origin. Well, the origin is the idea of the DAO was older than me. I mean, this is coming, Bitcoin is a DAO in itself. Ethereum wrote a white paper. So maybe starting with the white paper by Vitalik, which is like a prophecy because most of it actually got fulfilled. Um, so I read this in, I think, beginning 2014. I was doing my PhD in theoretical physics. I got totally like, sucked into it. And after the crowd sale, I started in the group with Gavin Wood and C++ team writing tests. So I was full-time on uh, working with the Ethereum Foundation. But working actually closely with Jeffrey Wilke, Gavin Wood, and Vitalik Buterin, because they were both the heads of their clients, Python, Go, and C++. And I would write tests that they always would like sync with each other, always be true to the protocol. And the protocol itself written by Gavin in the yellow paper. That's why like per default, he was kind of right. And the other ones needed to check that they were also doing the right thing. So working for the foundation, um, one and a half years, and then leaving end of 2015 um, with my co-founders, then my brother, Simon Jens and Stefan Tual, we started Slocket. Long story short, uh, we wanted to build like a decentralized sharing economy. We called it Universal Sharing Network. I actually think Criff came up with this term, I guess. Or, like This was also the time Criff joined, like beginning 2016, end of 2015. And so then the idea, of course, was to do fundraising. Um, we didn't want to go with VCs because we wanted to build a decentralized universal share network. We want to have lots of people access to it. And back then, even token sales were pretty rare and new. There was, I think, Augur did one pretty early. Uh, we had, of course, the Ethereum crowd sale itself. So we thought the best thing would be to raise from the community. But now with Ethereum being launched and we know the tech, we could do much better. So we said, instead of just doing a simple token sale, let's give them more voting power and then basically it evolved to let's just have the power over the money. We keep the money in the smart contract until we said, let's do a full blown down, like fully decentralized as it should be with no compromises. And this actually happened in the week of DEFCON 1. Like this decision was made one day before the talk. So I changed my slides and then pre presented it. We got a lot of traction, a lot of interest. So I wrote the paper about the DAO, meaning like how it should work, the smart contract, the first version. Then we got more people joining it since it was an open source project. Um, Left Terrace joined the company. Um, some people has had some open source contribution, but not too many. Then we got like the audit, we coded it. We don't want to get into all the details, but we know we launched. Not exactly we launched. If you describe it in the book how it happened, I, I, I committed the last commit 
and then made it public under version 1.0. This was like officially the last step from Slockit. Of course, we were very involved in the Slack community and hoped that people would launch it as they did. Got launched. You read in the book, it raised lots of money, about $150 million. Then the price of Ether went up. And at some yeah, point, it closed to $250 million. Okay, let's, yeah, let's stop there. Well, now but we're this, going too far in the future. So sorry, let's, this is my No, involvement. no, no, it's okay. But why, so why don't we, I think it's Left Terrace next who joined. Do you want to go, Le mm, Left Terrace? I, I joined Ethereum back in 2014, yeah, uh, along with Christian. And I worked on um, uh, the Solidity team, uh, writing the Solidity compiler and the C++ uh, client. I was hired by uh, Iron Buchanan, and uh, I was working under Gavin, and just worked on there until the launch of Ethereum. And right after DevCon 1, as per the book also, <laughs> we all were uh, let go of our positions. And then I knew Christoph, who was also working with us. And he told me about this really cool new startup, uh, Slockit. And I had seen also the DevCon 1 presentation. I was like, well, why not? That sounds like a cool thing to do. And joined um, uh, Slockit in beginning of 2016 or end of 2015, like somewhere there. I don't remember exactly where. And then, yeah, worked there. <laughs> I actually find the coolest stuff that we did was... Uh, before the DAO, like it's not mentioned at all, but you know, we did all this universal setting, um, uh, planning the, the um, Ethereum computer we were trying to create and uh, went with Simon. Uh, so, um, uh, Christoph's brother and co founder of Slokit, uh, and Stefan, of course, like to Barcelona. Snappy Ubuntu? MWC. Yes, the conference uh, in Barcelona. The yeah, the, the conference in Barcelona. Conference. Yeah, and there we got the Ubuntu guys all really excited about stuff and it was really, really cool. And there was no DAO mention almost at all there. We were just talking about the actual Ethereum computer that we wanted to create. Uh, so uh, IoT devices that are, well, uh, controlling physical things and everything happens through the blockchain. Yeah, but then funding came up and then it was the DAO that... Um, Traumatic experiences here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, PTSD. It's a thing. The, the moment I think about it, it's like I stammer. Um, but no, it was like the as also um, presented in the DevCon One presentation. Like wanted to get funding from the community, not from VCs. Uh, so we started working on the DAO, and uh, yeah, that's probably already towards the end of my involvement at Slockit. Uh, I don't need to go to the hack already, right? So No, no. Wait, there was one thing I, I felt that I wanted to say. But but so, I mean, Christoph was saying that he thought that, you know, they had decided to do the DAO right before DEF CON, but you're saying that you guys almost got the VC funding at the Mobile World Congress? There was no funding there. The, the DAO was at least known in DEF CON 1. That's when I basically announced we will do this. Uh, but we went, of course, to conferences. It's not for VC money, just like to get the Ethereum computer, this IoT device out, to get people excited about connecting IoT devices to the blockchain. This is what Left Terrace did there. It was the Ubuntu folks. Yeah. This. Okay. Yeah, so there were many people who were really excited about, you know, like the actual thing that we wanted to build. So the DAO was just a, a mechanism to get funding in a more 
cypherpunk way rather than just you know going the old VC way. But the thing that we wanted to build was completely different. And this is also why why um, uh, Christoph and Slokit appealed to me, like because we were talking a lot also while we were working together about you know IoT. I was very much into low level um, stuff back then, and uh, yeah, I really liked the idea, and I got really really excited, and I thought that this DAO thing is just a a distraction uh, from what we actually wanted to do. Huh. Okay. And Griff, what about you? Yeah. I mean, like, like they're saying, we were a sharing economy company. So I came in way, I didn't know much about Ethereum beforehand. I actually had been in crypto for a while, but uh, had heard Ethereum was vaporware and just didn't really think much of it. And so, but then I, I was getting a, a master's degree, actually the first master's degree ever or any degree ever in digital currencies and which I collected a week after the DAO hack. It's kind of funny. But um, for my interest in crypto, I was really excited about DAOs specifically interlacing with the sharing economy. And I wrote a white paper for one of my classes about a bike sharing economy. And so I sent uh, and then I just was Googling like sharing economy, crypto, you know, or Bitcoin probably at that time, sharing economy, Bitcoin. And uh, Slocka came up and it's like, they're using Ethereum. That's crazy, whatever. And then, but but I'll, I'll DM them, you know, and I, I think I sent, I don't know how many emails I sent to Christoph, but many. Uh, and thankfully for, you know, no one's going to read some random dude's white paper, but uh, I took a video recording of me presenting the white paper for the class. And, you know, I'm pretty engaging to listen to. So like, he was like, oh, this guy's cool. I think, I don't know what you were thinking, Christopher, but you let me in. I was, I was so excited and um, I was like, I will work for free. Just let me like participate in this amazing thing. I can't believe you guys are doing exactly what I want to do. So uh, I, I jumped in as, uh, I don't even know, I guess I was like an intern or something, right? Uh, and, and help make the Slack and coordinate the community around Slocket. And that, that was really how I got in. So you guys had this idea for this universal sharing economy that had these kind of like smart locks that would open with Ethereum transactions. Is that like a good kind of general description? This one. Oh. Wow. Yes. That's actually the one. That's the one from DEFCON 1. Wow. And you, can you hold it up one, once more for a bit longer? So, can you see this? Wow. It's a doorknob. That's the DEFCON 1. Okay. Okay. Nice. That's so funny. For people listening on audio, you might want to check out the video for that. And so then you had this idea to get funding from this DAO, which would kind of, I mean, the way most people thought of it was that it was going to be this decentralized venture fund because it would be like proposals and then the community would vote on which ones they wanted to fund. So when you announced the DAO, what was the community's like general response to the idea? I would say very positive in the beginning. It was like really what always people wanted to do. But also it was not thought of as a venture fund. Although, of course, later on it became more this direction because people talked about it like it. In the beginning, it was more like their company, which would be behind the decentralized sharing economy or behind the universal sharing network. And we would be one of many getting funded by it because we would build it and work for it. Let's say we would do like, let's say, bike locks or door locks. And another company would do washing machines, whatever. So they could also go to this DAO and ask for funding because they want to connect some other stuff to the sharing economy. But I, I was thinking at least more of, this is the company which builds the universal share network, or companies, maybe the wrong word. So more the organization which is doing this, completely distributed. And we would 
just be a service provider. But yes, the community was actually very um, interested. That's why we got like five or 6,000 people on Slack within a couple of weeks. Um, at DEF CON 1, people got excited. They love to go to our booth and feel and touch kind of Ethereum. I think it was more like for the first time, people could touch Ethereum in some way. They could get a feeling of, I, and the Airbnb was a big thing back then. Like it was really like starting to taking off and people learned how Airbnb works. And just this idea of I could pay kind of the door lock to open and people got really excited to see it firsthand. So that's, I think, one reason we got such a positive feedback. Yeah, I actually, I'm in an Airbnb right now and I had a tr I had trouble with the lock and it would have been really nice if I could have used a transaction on my phone to open it. But anyway, and Griff or Left Harris, do you want to add anything to that? I can just say, a hundred percent agree. You know, the venture, the venture side of the DAO was kind of rewritten after the DAO hack, and really during at the time, it was of course the DAO could do anything, but I think we imagined that the main DAO would follow Slocket, or like that was kind of the cultural thing that we expected. We had no idea, but the DAO had this feature where it would split off. And so, you know, I, at least I thought like other people might want to try other ventures, but they'd probably end up splitting off into a separate DAO and siphoning some of the original funds. So it, it would have been a very mm, fractal sort of VC fund, you know, uh, if, if, it, if it went that direction. But we, we never know. I think it came a bit when a lot of money came in. In the beginning, we saw it about 5 million. Like this, you cannot like fund hundreds, hundreds of ventures with like 5 million or even 10. So it was like maybe 5, maybe 10, maybe even 20 million. You could still use all of this for the universal share network for like, let's say, five companies building things around it. But when there was $150 million in it, it then it really looked like a venture fund. Because like this can fund so many things in the Ethereum world. And people accepted this is like that decentralized venture fund for the Ethereum community funding everything in there. This was how it was after it received that much money, but not before. And why did you guys not cap the sale? There were several reasons for this. Um, I remember we had a discussion in Slack about this, pros and cons. The pros, of course, security point of view, like we don't need that much money. This was a pro. The con was, what if one big whale just gets all of it or 50 or 60% of it just very quickly? Because you saw those ICOs, very getting the big guys getting in very quickly. And this was one thing we were afraid of. And that maybe would just some people want to get in and cannot get in. And we maybe we feel overconfident in the security of the DAO that we didn't think of this kind of hack. We said this is also why we tested that much and people could like split it, split off if they don't like it. So that in the end we decided to not do it because it got things more complicated than this than it needs to be. Of course, in hindsight, from a security point of view, it would have been better if we would have done it, of course. But back at the time, we decided not to. And just to go back to how popular the DAO became and how it raised so much money, why do you think it raised that much money? Because it was a lot and Ethereum wasn't even that big at that time. Uh, the split function, right? Like It felt like a risk-free investment because you could always split your money out. And uh, it's kind of like what is now the rage quit mechanism in Moloch DAOs, where it feels like, well, okay, I can put my money in, but I have like cryptographic security that I can pull my money out. So it felt like something to do. And then, of course, once it cascaded and got so big, people FOMO'd in like, like no tomorrow. You know, at the time, we didn't understand FOMO, right? Like it was, this is long before all the ICOs and, and all that stuff. So that's my guess. Left, what do you think? 
I mean, I, I credit uh, Stefan for this. He was really good at what he did. And we had, let's say, the, the cream of the crop of the Ethereum uh, community back then as curator. So it was, it really looked as if it's approved by everyone and everybody and it's the next big thing. This is how it looked like. And probably that should have, that's alone should have pointed to us that it will get bigger than we expected. Uh, but I, I, nobody expected this much money. Like, I don't think that Christoph expected, I, like, reading the book, I don't think you expected that much. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely not. I also have to say, in hindsight, I was very naive at the time. Like, I didn't make a big deal of those creators. Like, Stefan, I think he understood a bit more what we were doing there because he was more like the marketing and community management. And so for me, it was really, we needed a list of creators who know what they were doing. So of course, it would be nice if they respected the community. That's why I asked them, but I didn't think of it as like a, also a marketing thing. Like you have those names there. Stefan understood this very well and used this also. And I can't blame him for this. Again, he did a great job. He, his job was to build a community and to get people excited about it, which he did way better than we expected. And the second thing, why I think that's what Chris said, after, let's say, the first 10 or 15 million, it got attention. And then people started to think of it as an investment fund. And so if all the companies building on Ethereum would be funded by the DAO, then this would be the perfect investment if you just want to invest in the Ethereum ecosystem, but not the base layer and the application layer. It would it looked like created by those guys, even though that their job was not like to judge those projects. Their job was actually to check the address, maybe an ID that it, like everything is correct. But it... It looked like they would like actually create and look at what's good, what's not, and all the applications would just get funding from there. So then, from an investor point of view, I got one call from an Israeli guy that we want to put in twenty million, maybe, and if if it's safe or not. I just said nothing. Well, you have to decide on your own. You have to do the security audit. I can't tell you anything. So, but this was clearly a guy who thought about it from a purely investment perspective. Like, is this the way I can invest in the Ethereum application layer? That's how it became later on because it started like to raise. First 10 or 20 million. And then, as Griff said, they firmed in because they maybe thought there's no other way to get into those application layer companies building because it would all get funded by the DAO. That could be one reason. Yeah, that makes sense because I did realize in the report, in the course of my reporting, that there were multiple companies that were looking to make proposals to the DAO. And ultimately, later they had ICOs. But at the time, there were a lot of people that were like, oh, I'll go get funding from the DAO. One thing I want the listeners to know is that we have mentioned Stefan a few times. That's Stefan Twal, who actually started in Ethereum as the, well, I think he started kind of more as like community management and communications. And then later he was brought onto the management team as chief communications officer. And then uh, you will read what happened in the book to him at the EF, at the Ethereum Foundation. Um, and then later he ended up at Socket as a co-founder. And again, he kind of had, yeah, this sort of outward facing communications type role. So once you guys realized that it was get that it was going to be huge, how did you feel? Yeah. I mean, I think I was the only one that was happy about it. Honestly. <laughs> well, maybe Stefan too. Stefan was Stefan was pretty happy about it. Everyone else, uh, the developers were scared as like profanity, insert profanity here. It was a really intense time. But I don't know, Christoph, I think you have to say say how you felt. 
again, we did not expect anything like this at all. On the one side, happy like the plan worked, they actually got money because there was also a fear that maybe get just like a couple of hundred thousand and this was like nothing. And we worked so much for it because from a financial point of view, uh, we did not expect this taking so long. And also Simon, like he was using his credit cards to buy food for his family. Like he didn't get money for a long time. We, we, we were so uh, developers, we were naive, like always two weeks, you know, it can put anything in two weeks. So we thought maybe end of December, January, we're getting the style out. And then of course it took longer and the more legal work. And then it tracked on until April. And so we really needed funding and we were totally stressed because we were working like crazy all those hours. So me was like, now I need a break. And this was not a break. Like this was just more exciting. More people asking me and just, I just needed a little break. And I was really scared about it. I mean, there's a photo of me with one of like one guy in Berlin, uh, EY advisor. And he was like concreted, giving us shaking hands, concreting us. I could not be, even be happy. Like they were making dinner for us. I was just, just leave me alone for a couple of weeks. I've not, because this is like, I don't know where this will end. Like if there's so much money in it, I have no idea what this will become. And maybe I don't want to be associated with this anymore if they're just funding some crazy stuff, which I don't like. But I also didn't know I could never, ever stop this. this will, like, even when I'm 80 or 90, the, this is true. I mean, on Ethereum, you'll always see this. This will always be there. Um, just not alive anymore. Not that much alive. Love, Terrace. Do you want to add on that? I was uh, actually when for, for the entire duration, I think of the race, I was not in Germany. I was at my parents' place in Greece and they were also watching it and saying, oh, look at what our son is working on. It's gathering money. And it's like, yeah, yeah, that sure. And then he's like, oh, wait, that's, you know, isn't the lot aren't didn't you guys quote this? Are you sure that it's okay? And then I said, yeah, yeah, no worries. And then it started going five, 10, and then it went up and... I just didn't want to go back to Germany. <laughs> I, I I got like a, a similar um, stresses as Christoph because I mean it's, it's actually quite simple. As a developer, you just know that things can go wrong. Like there is no such thing as bug-free code, and yeah, it's just stressful to know that something that you worked on has gathered uh, and is securing so much money. And well, probably it, it, that stress had a reason to be there. <laughs> you do what happened. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about that because before the actual hack, there were a lot of conversations online about how there were flaws in, in the, in the DAO. Nobody picked up on, you know, the ultimate exploit, but obviously like there was a New York times article of flaws that Emin Gunsir, the Cornell professor pointed out along with, I think it was like Dino Mark. And I, I forget who else was on that paper, but and Dino Mark used to work at consensus Oh, yeah, Vlad Zamfair, yeah, who worked uh, doing, yeah, Ethereum research. And there, but there were other things because I know you guys were um, looking at how to enable people to remove their money more quickly and kind of arguing about whether or not you should do that and things like that. So at that time, when people were pointing out the flaws, the sale was done, you knew, you know, you had rate. So by my calculation, the day that the sale ended, it was 139 million, but then the price of Ether was rising. So by the morning of the hack, it was a quarter billion dollars. So while people were talking about all the flaws, and then you're seeing the val the dollar value of it rise, what what were you your feelings during that period? So I've, I did take them seriously, but also as I said, nobody pointed out like the really really bad flaws. Like you can take money from it, or it was more game theoretical things that you could, for example, this bias towards yes, and yes, those are true things, but they're usually not fat hell. Like this is not like the end of it. It was more like, yes, it needs improvement. So we, sometimes they did write it in a manner. It sounded like 
everything is going to end. This thing is like completely broken. And so that's why we defended it sometimes that no, it's not completely broken. It needs improvement. And then we started working on this DAO version two. We made on GitHub, like already created those issues. I started writing code. We all know that DAO version two is not just a simple click and deploy. It needs to like deploy and convince everybody to move there. And so that's why we also try to work on what can we do like as intermediate solutions. What we could do was working on the smart contract of the receiver of the funds. So we made this like a smart contract which from which you can make proposals to receive money from the DAO. Would hope that people would use it as a default. And there you could build in a bit more security things so that um, people could, for example, get their money back from there as well if they would vote it for it. Things like this, a day, like a daily payout, not a all at once. So that's the kind of things we worked on. And since we were not scared for this thing would lose all their money, it's just like, yes, it needs improvement. We need a second version. And also because it got that big, we said, let's create a security group. You wrote about this in this book. We make a proposal. I, and since it got that big, I was scared. I was like, let's get like five of the top notch researchers. And they are costing like $300 or $500 per hour. It's sort of like if you're asking for those security audit companies, they charge a lot. And so we said, this is a very expensive. We want to have 24-7, everybody, like all the time watching the ether scan or something, what is happening. And so we made a proposal, which was expensive. And you wrote how the community reacted, was not happy. So we said, okay, if you don't want this, we make a smaller one, which of course, just one guy, um, not that much security. But we felt, of course, this was so new and so much ways this could maybe be attacked. So you wanted to do something. Also, if you, even though we saw none of the flaws mentioned were brutal, critical, and would stop everything, just small things which needs improvement. And that's what you try to fix, yeah. I felt a bit annoyed by all of this stuff because I'll be honest, I felt that people wanted to make uh, themselves famous through associating with the DAO in a negative way. Like we had a lot of problems pointed out, but these problems, for example, like the negative vote thing, the bias for voting yes, I think, or something like that. DAOs still have this problem. Like I, I, I had a f- not fight, but argument with someone from the ENS DAO right now that a proposal was not going to pass because he was abstaining. Uh, and then he says, "Oh yes, you you are actually right." And then he voted no just to make the proposal pass, even though you know he wanted to say that he didn't want to vote no, but he wanted to um, so that he doesn't agree, and he abstained. And that he, with three hours for the proposal, basically it would make it not pass. Even though if he voted no, the proposal would pass. It's exactly that same thing, and it still happens. So it's not as if the problems that were pointed out were, were serious. I mean, maybe the most serious one um, was something that was not found by any of them, and it was the one that, yeah, the withdrawal, how was it called? So, yeah, the stocking withdrawals, which this is, yeah. Well, so we'll, we can talk about that later when we talk about, you know, my article revealing who we believe I did attack the Dow. Um, so, okay. So why don't we do this? So we're going to take a commercial break to hear from the sponsors who make this show possible. And afterward, we will go into all things Dow attack and Dow hack. Finance is changing. Strategies are changing. Holding is changing. Beefy Finance, the multi-chain yield optimizer, allows you to maximize passive income while you sleep. Simply deposit your crypto into Beefy's secure, industry-leading auto-compounding vaults to put your funds to work. Each one of Beefy's 740 vaults automatically reinvests the interest gained on your crypto deposits, earning you more while saving you time and fees. 
Beefy's strategies create bank-busting APYs with 0% deposit fees at the click of a button. Join $1.4 billion of investments and understand why so many users trust Beefy with their financial independence. Visit beefy.finance and take control of your financial future. Join over 10 million people using Crypto.com, the easiest place to buy, earn, and spend over 150 cryptocurrencies. New users enjoy zero credit card fees on crypto purchases in their first 30 days. With Crypto.com Earn, you can get industry-leading interest rates of up to 8.5% on over 40 coins, including Bitcoin, and earn up to 14% on stablecoins. With the Crypto.com Visa card, you can spend your crypto anywhere. Enjoy up to 8% cash back instantly, plus 100% rebates for your Netflix, Spotify, and Amazon Prime subscriptions, and zero annual fees. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 with the code LAURA. Link in the description. Building the next big thing in crypto? CrossRiver has your back. Whether you are a crypto exchange, NFT marketplace, or wallet, CrossRiver's integrated API-based platform provides the payments solutions you need to grow. CrossRiver is powering the future of financial services. A CryptoFin industry award winner and an early partner for companies like Coinbase, CrossRiver's tech stack supports crypto partners and enables real-time money movement for consumers. Welcome to a new world of crypto-friendly banking. Request your fiat on off-ramp solution now at crossriver.com slash crypto. Back to my conversation with Christoph, Lefteris, and Griff. All right. So let's talk about the DAO hack. How did you, why don't you each just tell us briefly how it is that you found out and how you felt at that moment? I think, I think I was the first to find out. I feel like it was, I want to say his name was Mo. I mean, I can't even remember anymore. So long ago, I woke up and went to the Slack because that's my job, you know? And just talking to the community and they're like, hey, something weird is happening. You know, it looks like the DAO Etherscan maybe is broken or something. And then uh, started looking into it. And then I started DMing everyone uh, because it was pretty, looked really bad. And eventually got a hold of Simon, who's not in this call. And I was like, you got to wake, find Christoph, go to his house, wake him up. You know, because this is like 6.30 a.m. or something. Yeah, and then we had to formulate a plan. Uh, I, I think I ended up getting a hold of Left Harris. I can't remember. Who got a hold of you, Left? Definitely you. I, I remember this call. <laughs> it was you and it was early morning. And how did you feel when you heard the news? I just didn't believe. What, like, uh, so first of all, I didn't believe what Griff was saying. So I wanted to verify it. And I verified that something is wrong by going to Etherscan. And then I felt really bad. And I just tried to realize what's happening. I think that my first reaction was to actually, because it was maybe eight or nine, so close to my, like I had to wake up, I had woken up, and then I probably started to try and understand and also talked with others and Christoph, I think, and others in the chats about trying to figure out uh, what the attack was and uh, uh, remake the contract. That, so not remake, um, recreate the attack, basically, to understand what's happening. And Christoph? I think it was Friday morning, if I remember right. Yeah. My brother came, my brother called my way, my wife. She was waking me up because as I was working long, so I was sleeping a bit longer in the morning. And she was just saying, Simon was just saying, well, there's something strange happening. Um, just check on Etherscan. 
So I, when I went on EtherScan, you could see this very regular thing going out. I could look, look like it was a split DAO function, which was called. So the beginning, I was saying, well, this is just a regular thing. People can call the split DAO. It's just something for whatever reason, someone doing it in a very regular way. But looking deeper at it, that's like having some kind of going through other contracts and going back, then it seemed like, no, this isn't hack. And this was, then I really realized this is over. This was like game over for me because I know how less we could do. I know that we had no power over the DAO. We couldn't change the code. We couldn't do anything. So this was like the worst case scenario. Like I prepared in a way that people could split and get their money out. Like that's what the last test I did was always, if something is wrong, people can split and get their money out or they can make a proposal and get their money out. So the money can get, never get stuck. That's like what I was more worried about. But this like money was flowing out of the system. I was then laying on my crown. It's like, this is over. So then I really have to like, get all my stuff together again. I said, well, now let's fight back. I have to do what I got to do. So call F, call Vitalik. They've called the Ethereum Foundation for help because I wanted to have as many people as possible looking at the code, seeing, because I could not see directly what was happening. Like in the first, let's say 30 minutes or so, I did not detect what was happening. So that's, and we started the call with the Ethereum Foundation. And this was a strange feeling because I haven't talked to them since a while. It's so like, like, hi guys, I'm here again. And I'm, I'm really sorry. This was like, I think that's how I started. So, and he, they just didn't want to hear this. Like, okay, let's just dig in what's happening here. Has anybody a clue? And then we just write into what, what's got, what, what can we do? And I think even this first call, we thought about all options and just like your soft fork, something quick, like can we somehow get the miners to not include transaction to the style just to win some time? This was the first thought. We need time to analyze this. Um, that's why the soft fork was the first idea. I think hard fork, I don't know if this came up or not in the call, but soft fork, first let's buy time. And then, but we could not find it out in this calls. We just, after speaking to each other, sharing all the information, we got back to work and tried to figure it out what it was. I don't know exactly who found it out and reported it. I think it was on some Skype or Slack channel. Um, someone who shared the details. Yeah. And one thing I want to clarify for people, when you said that you couldn't like fix it, it's because you would have needed to get the whole community to agree to this upgrade and then get everybody to migrate their tokens. So, you know, it's, since it's decentralized, also you like weren't in control of it. You couldn't just kind of be like, okay, we're going to fix this and, you know, redo it. Um, it was live on Ethereum and it would have needed all the community support to change it. And, and frankly, the tooling is not what it is today. So um, even though it was technically a DAO, there was literally no way for the token holders to really manage it, which is like another another funny thing, but also cool to see how much progress has been made in DAOs. Okay, so this next part only involves Left Harris and Griff, because I believe, and Chris, Christoph, you can correct me if I'm wrong. At this point, you just decided to focus on coding up a hard fork in case Ethereum decided to go that route. It was not this day. Like it, it took a bit more time until this decision was made. I don't know, one or two weeks, not too long, but it didn't take too long for me to realize the hard fork would be the only like clean solution that everybody could get everything back. Everything else should be tried and then you can take it over, lift tails and curve because you focus on plan B. Yeah, so during this part, left Harris and Griff were involved in trying to rescue the money so talk a little bit about what that was like and what was going on in your mind while you were working on that or trying to work on that. Well, it was definitely a team effort, right? Uh, like the night before the DAO, I was writing a, starting a blog post about Jordi Bellina who made liquid democracy for the DAO that I had already used 
which we still don't have today on Ethereum anywhere, as far as I can tell. So, uh, you know, the rain, which is like delegating votes, right? Yeah, liquid delegation. So you could delegate to someone who could delegate, who could delegate. And so there's one hop delegation on Ethereum, but I haven't seen too much liquid democracy. But he had made the thing, right? Uh, he created this contract and it, it, it was there, uh, but just never got used due to the DAO uh, hack. I, I used it to vote on something. Oh, wait, wait, in the DAO? Because I, in the he's, DAO. I, I could have sworn he told me that he created it too late, so it actually didn't get implemented in the DAO. It didn't get implemented in the DAO code as a default for voting everywhere. So then he re-implemented it on top of Ethereum as separate contracts oh. so that you could just send your DAO tokens to a contract and then you'd get DAO vote tokens and then you'd use those DAO vote tokens to signal how oh. your delegates should vote. Oh, cool. uh, and, or kind of, you know, or, or you could like, your delegate would have to vote by a certain time and then you could use your delegate DAO tokens to pull out your DAO tokens so his vote doesn't have your weight if you disagree. Huh. It was a super cool thing and it worked. And so I was writing a blog post, you know, da, da, da. And then, of course, the next day, well, that wasn't the priority, that blog post anymore. But uh, while Lefteris was figuring out the hack, uh, how the hack happened, I think you were first, Lef. I can't remember. But Yeah, so uh, this, is, this is something that was really, <laughs> it wasn't in the book. And I was like, ah, no, <laughs> my moment of glory. <laughs> uh, well, he didn't tell me then because I, I didn't know this. Uh, I don't know. Modest. I don't remember. Uh, actually, I, I tried to forget this stuff because I also was too scared about the implications. I think that I haven't talked to anybody uh, about this stuff until you contacted me. And the only reason why I think I talked to you is because a lot of time passed since then. <laughs> but it was just that I, I, as far as I recall, I had recreated the attack and had an attack contract ready on the same night, but we never used it at that day. We used it later. Yeah, and Jordi Jordi had his own attack contract, right? Yeah, that was slightly this different. is in the book. So Jordi um, was also mentioned pretty well there about that last uh, four million. Well, Liv Terrace, if I if I ever I don't know if I ever update the book in any way, um, I will I will try to put your moment of glory in there. <laughs> yeah, I, I, so so we had uh, we had figured out a couple we had figured out how the attack happened and then. We kind of like gathered other people who we trusted that to figure out if we should make an attack because the hacker stole $50 million, but there's $100 million still sitting there, right? And while the hacker was attacking, we didn't have it still. But then the hacker just, the attack just stopped and we didn't really know why. And then we figured out how to hack in. So then it was like, well, but there's no sense of urgency. The, the, drain, it, the draining has stopped. So when do we attack? And this was like a big debate amongst the, the, at that time, the Robin Hood group. Yeah, which people can definitely read about this in the book because I, this, this was fascinating to me. Um, and, and it still is part of kind of the philosophical question around what really even happened. So during this whole time, did you guys think that the Dow attacker was going to attack again? I mean, nothing stopped him, right? I'd, I think, Griff, you maybe mentioned that he stopped because, so uh, not mentioned, like uh, theorized, right? That maybe he stopped because, you know, if he took everything, then it would be, you know, like too much. But if he just took 30% of it, and then maybe he can get away with it or something like that. Uh, others theorized that maybe his contract got 
broken somehow. He had some kind of flaw, and then it, he just stopped. But uh, as you also mentioned in the book, like once, I mean, if, if I realized it in the in, in 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 less than a day, then others can do that also. And once that's publicized, everybody can copycat the entire attack. So then. Uh, even if it's not the original hacker, someone else will perform an attack. It was just a matter of time. So the next kind of like month for you guys was very intense. Do you want to talk a little bit about what that was like during that period between, and we didn't even really cover the initial rescue. So we can talk about the initial rescue and just in general, what you were doing between then and the hard fork and like what was going through your head and what your life was like. It was Dow Wars. It was wild. I, I mean, Lef, at the beginning, Lef and Jordy were just practicing attacking. It was like drills, like military drills. And they were going all day, all night, like just practicing attacking the Dow. And I was going more from the social angle, gathering capital, because to attack the Dow effectively, you needed a lot of money. And so it was like uh, we were, there was a lot of, on the social side, it was finding all of the curators, getting their uh, private keys you know, it's hard to get people's private keys. I can't believe they were handing them out. But uh, so we, we got their private keys. We're asking other people for DAO tokens and Ether so that we can uh, achieve the attacks uh, in, a, in a faster way. And it was just kind of a waiting game until eventually someone actually started hacking. And that's when it was wild. It was really crazy. We were, you know, <laughs> I mean, people still have gas issues to this day, right? We were having gas issues like it was a, it felt, it felt like a, a, mil, a military operation, but at the same time, we're not military people, you know, we were just hackers trying to make it work. And then once we ended up rescuing the funds, uh, then it was uh, like kind of just pushing for the hard fork as well as, you know, there were ended up being eight, nine different hackers that all had money in it. So we had to figure out how do we, you know, we, we didn't stop, you know, it was just this constant Christoph is holding down the hard fork stuff. Let's let's figure out like the hard fork will work, you know. But what if it doesn't? And that was Left Terrace and I and Jordy and and the crew. Because uh, uh, after we stole a hundred million dollars from the Dow, some people uh, didn't want to be any part of it anymore. So the Robinhood group became the White Hat group, a much smaller group, and uh, and we just kept practicing like how are we going to hack the other hackers and how can we engineer a solution to get into the dark, dark DAO, right? And I'm sure you talk about all this stuff in your book. Yeah. And so for people, dark DAO was the split DAO or child DAO where the hacker had siphoned the funds, the 3.64 million ETH, the 30, 31% of the ETH in the DAO. Um, Left Harris, what about you? What was your life like during this period? Not fun. <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, basically like this, like uh, basically what, Griff described, described it very accurately. Since the night of the, I think it was evening, right? The initial um, uh, white hat attack. Yeah, like Tuesday night around 7 p.m., I think, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Like you explain how it happened in the book. I don't know how much detail you want me to go. I think that it was mostly accurate. Uh, but we also, like, uh, I think we shared, we shared the same private key and just had different people do the attacks, uh, had scripts. Uh, so the initial attack was successful in taking everything out of the DAO, uh, except for the last remaining in which uh, Jordi had a different contract that he had made. And that was basically, I remember it was different than mine and it just didn't have 
they already made attack so it, he just made it work and take the last 4 million and from that point on Griff had this amazing uh, spreadsheet I still have a link to it I think <laughs> where he just um, he had organized everything very very nicely so I, I still think that this is a very nice I think you probably had access to it right because you used the same names that we used there in the book yeah I, I can't remember if I had access to the doc or if Griff gave me a screenshot of it but I, I'm now actually listening to my own audiobook because I have never heard it all the way through. And earlier today, I went through that section. I was narrating it to myself. Um, and yeah, it's very intense because also, if I remember correctly, it was like color-coded. So it's like very, you know, there are like certain days where it's just like, you can tell you guys were like, ah, we have to do this thing right now. <laughs> There's like a lot of exclamation points too. So basically, <laughs> Griff's job there was exactly like gathering... Uh, before the initial attack, uh, gather the funds to do the... Because this required a lot of ether. And... Oh, no, no, no tokens. I don't remember. No. Both. Ether Mostly DAO tokens. It yeah, no. It required... Um, was it DAO tokens? Yeah, DAO. Mostly DAO. DAO tokens. Yeah, DAO tokens to get ETH. The more DAO tokens you had, the more ether you could score out of the DAO. Exactly, yeah. yeah. You were sending in DAO tokens... And getting out ETH. Yeah, yeah, we had the whales that gave us DAO tokens and then just used them uh, for the um, uh, for draining. But also the fact that there were many copycats that indeed attacked at the same time as us, which is what caused us to actually take action finally. All those copycats got funds and they had to be followed. And it was people like Griff who organized. I think that Griff basically organized the entire thing on the dates. So when did this guy attack? When is his two-week period, uh, how much do we have there? And he was basically counting. Like, we have this spreadsheet that counts how many tokens do we have in each uh, Dark DAO, which we basically followed all of them in the original chain, at least. Yeah, this is, I think, like, this was one of the hardest parts of the book for me to explain. You know, there were just so many DAOs and, like, the money uh, was kind of different types of money. Like, some of them were dark, meaning they were, they looked, you know, nefarious, like people who had hacked for bad reasons. And then others were people like trying to innocently take their money out and, and just, you know, be like, I'm done with the Dow. Um, and, and I, I had a very hard time explaining this because this got super, super, super complicated. But, um, but the point is, I mean, it was much worse for you because you were trying to chase all that money. <laughs> all right. So let's move ahead to the hard fork, by the way. So we are going to skip over a very, very interesting side story with the Dow, which is kind of crazy and mind-blowing. And I, if you have not read the book yet, just please read it because there is something really crazy, a nice, a nice little subplot going on here that is, yeah, very mind-blowing. All right. So, so you guys hard fork. After the hard fork, did you expect Ethereum Classic to survive? And, um, you know, once you saw it did survive. How did you feel about that? I in no way expected Ethereum Classic to survive. It didn't make any sense to me uh, at the time. Uh, now it makes more sense. But at the time, it was like, everybody who had Ether got ETC. Why wouldn't they just sell it? Like, who cares? There's no development going on on ETC. There's nothing. Uh, it just, I, I even, it took me a while to call it ETC. I was pretty irreverent. I was calling it dead F, right? It's like, you can use your dead F for nothing just sell it you know uh so but i don't know maybe other people had thoughts i also did not expect it at all it's more because also we had hard forks before 
also at Ethereum, and nobody did care about the minority chain. Um, mostly, I there was a nice blog post by Vitalik recently about legitimacy. I cannot say this in English. Legitimacy. Yeah. To say, like, is it legit or not? And legit is also came with like Vitalik, the Ethereum Foundation, like the community in general. And it did feel all the time nobody wanted to change. So, meaning, even though somewhere against the hard fork, they mostly said, but I will follow whatever the maturity of the Ethereum community will do. That's what it felt before. So, meaning, I did not expect at all that there was a large group would say, I don't follow the maturity. I want to make this chain kind of work and support it and make, listing the coin. So I did not even think about selling because I did not think that someone would actually list it or that it would continue to be mined. So I was totally surprised by it. Left Harris. I think that here I was very much, um, uh, how do you say, it? like uh, affected by Griff's uh, comments because I didn't know anything about, you know, what he called uh, seed coins back then or altcoins or... I went with what he said and thought that may, there is no way. And I also like didn't imagine that this could happen. And I just thought that this would not exist. This can't exist. It's a joke. And then it actually existed and stayed. But <laughs> I, I didn't expect it. Let's just keep it short and say that I just would not have expected the Ethereum Classic to, to survive. It made no sense. And then now, so I know Christoph and Left Harris have read this part of the book and Griff hasn't because he just got the book yesterday. But now that you guys have read this part, do you guys have more understanding about like why that happened? I'm just curious. Even later, I kind of understood what happened. I mean, the things that you explain in there, after the stuff with Switzerland, there are some things that are not in in, in the book, I think, that we, we were contacted by some of these people. And I realized that there was a lot going on behind the scenes that I didn't know at the time. And if I had known those, I would have expected for it to, to, to stay, that there is powers that want it to stay because of financial reasons. But at the time, which time means like the first days after the hard fork? No, sorry. Listing of from Poloniex. That is what made it uh, for, for, for yeah. me and everybody else, I think. The listing by Poloniex uh, meant that it survives. At the time, uh, I thought that, no, this can't be serious and that it's a joke and the Poloniex makes a mistake and we'll just you know, we can just get free money. But then oh, I, wow. well, yeah, I realized it a lot later. Yeah, inside, I mean, also when I read the book, I have been very naive and I have lived in this Ethereum bubble, so to say. I was never like a hardcore Bitcoiner, even though I, I love Bitcoin, still do. Um, I never was so much engaged in this community. And so I, that's why I did, at the time I didn't anticipate there was so much hate against Ethereum because they maybe missed out on the crowd sale, or I just hated Ethereum because it had a, like a pre-mine, how they call it. So because of all those reasons, there's a lot of negative energy, also with a lot of money, and also with a lot of influence on those exchanges. And of course, on the crypto community in general. So, and realizing now, of course, the power was there, the financial incentive was there. There was enough reason to hate Ethereum and to see this as a chance, like also, especially the hard fork, goes against Bitcoin philosophy a lot. So this was a lot of reason for them to stay on the other side. So it makes a lot of sense today. But again, I was in my little crypto, not crypto bubble, Ethereum bubble. And from that bubble, that, that bubble's point of view didn't make sense. Yeah. And so for people like Left Terrace was sort of referencing that subplot I mentioned. And, and you're right. He, I think shortly after this, he understood probably why it survived or why it would survive. But okay. So why don't we just quickly catch everybody up on what you've done since all all these events in Ethereum, just 
kind of the last few years. And like, if you could just talk about kind of how people in Ethereum treat you, or maybe they don't know that you were involved in this. I don't know, but I'm just curious to hear. Well, I think the story starts really with DEFCON 2. That's when I like, this was shortly after that. And I was really, really afraid of going there. Like I was really like, even on the airport, I was saying like, what if like just some crazy Chinese guy just like on the street, just yeah, punches me or whatever. Like I was really even afraid, afraid of physical violence against me. So I, I did not know what to expect when going there. I actually did, that's also this thing, you cannot read this in the book, but I think it's okay for, to say now, I was not allowed to speak about the DAO. I wanted to speak about the DAO and I wanted to like what happened and how I feel about it. And I was, if I wanted to talk about it, I was not getting a talk. So like Ming was really, really strict because of SEC. They feared like that Ethereum would be connected to a DAO. This was like a forbidden topic. I was not allowed to mention it. And they were like standing there with the trigger to like shut me down and have a do because they didn't know if I would talk about a DAO. So this was like, that's why I had to talk about smart contract security, which seems like a bit boring after the DAO. I mean, sure, it's also related, but it would expect me to speak about what happened, but I was really not allowed to. So I made a more or less boring talk about smart contract security, like what we learned, what should be done in the future. And But in the end, DEFCON 2, 80% of the talks were about smart contract security. Like this was every talk saying the same. So in the end, yes, I at least said a little bit, like, thank you very much for like what you got. I'm sorry for what happened kind of. And I tried to give a little bit of like the emotion, which I actually felt all the time, what I really wanted to say. And I got a very positive feedback. And during DEFCON, so many people came to me and said, thank you. And like what you went through and like very, very positive. I was very relieved to feel this way because it's, it meant for me, I can continue to be a part of this community. I can continue to work in this space. Of course, there will be pay, people who hate me for what, what happened, but the majority of people understand and support me. And this is like everything which came after it was more or less the same. Of course, the closer you get to the DAO from a timescale perspective, the more people remember me and about this. But now, six years later, if you go somewhere, people don't know about the DAO anymore. Maybe something happened like there, but only really the people who were in the community at that time know my involvement or our involvement and know me. So this kind of time forgives lots of things. So after like one year or two, it was not that big of an issue anymore. And I stayed in this ecosystem as an entrepreneur building Slocket and as we sold it, now I'm building a venture studio. There's lots of projects in this direction. So that's future. But yes, I made more or less stayed there as an entrepreneur and trying to build things on Ethereum. I had um, similar feelings with Christoph. I was not welcome anymore in this because I had a part in the DAO. I didn't want to go to uh, DEFCON 2. I was afraid uh, for similar reasons, but also for reasons you have in the book, violence and problems because of some characters. But there I felt, uh, so just talking to people, I just felt uh, relieved, like completely relieved. There was not a single person who was aggressive. There was, everybody was saying, you guys did great. And that's without anybody knowing what uh, I did there. Like from, um, so this is something that actually has pissed me off to this day. At that point, I decided that uh, after leaving um, that subplot, uh, that I would never talk about what uh, happened with the hack that I was not involved in, even though some people mentioned my name, I never said that I did this. And Griff, I had to ask him to not mention my name. And that's why I was not known to be much part. Like the only thing is some Reddit posts that 
some people assume that I am part of the Robin Hood group, but I never actually said anything until basically you contacted me. Or maybe Matthew Leasing uh, is the first guy that I talked to, but I think that we talked more than anything else uh, in more detail. I mean, back in, in DevCon 2, I felt just, just by mentioning that uh, I worked in the DAO and that it was, you know, like bad time, everybody was just saying really good things. Nobody said, oh, you guys, uh, you know, like did something wrong or we hate you or anything like that. And something that uh, I think that Christoph sometimes is a bit too um, shy. Uh, he didn't just get positive feedback. Uh, probably it is in the video, but you will see that he got a standing ovation at the end of his uh, uh, DevCon 2 talk. And it was a very, very, uh, <laughs> it was a very emotional moment, I think, uh, at least for me, because I was there in the crowd and it felt as if you can still be part of the community because after leaving there, I really thought that, so after leaving that subplot, I thought that I would be out of crypto completely. And uh, Christoph's talk and the reaction to it and the experiences that I had in Shanghai basically made me change my mind completely. Yeah, yeah. I watched that video and I chronicle it in the book because also it was emotional even just watching it for me. So um, yeah, it was it was really lovely how people treated you afterward, I felt. Rip, sorry, did you want to talk a little bit about what you had done since and how people treated you? Sure, and, and Lefteris is totally underselling his contributions, to, as always, uh, to the space after he left uh, from Raiden and all, all the BrainBot work uh, and to starting Roki, uh, which is like... Oh, yeah, I, f- the- I forgot to mention uh, what I yeah. did since then. Yeah, sorry. Uh, yeah, I joined BrainBot. Um, uh, uh, we made a payment channel network, a uh, uh, layer what they call now layer two, but I left that uh, position in, at some point, and then I started my own company, which is like a privacy-preserving portfolio tracker and accounting tool for Ethereum and many other blockchains. And yeah, that's what I'm doing right now, like my own thing. I want to add one small thing, which was a hard thing: is like we kept the name Slocket and continue to do Slocket. This was like the decision, like, should we now say, well, this is over? Like, after what happened, many people told us, burn down Slocket. You can create a new company if you want. You can even have the same co-founders do even the same thing, but don't use Slocket anymore. It's like over. And we make this, like, decision to not do this, to stand with the name, even though the DAO happened and all of the stuff, even the co-founders stayed together. We made, right after the DAO decision, like, we did some consulting I even saw Criff wearing a suit and went going to us to like a company in Berlin, uh, just just selling our time basically. And Stefan Stefan Tual had the task to try to get an investment. And if he would not have gotten an investment, I think we would have shut it down maybe six or twelve months later. Yeah, I think we all had it really easy. Honestly, I feel bad for Stefan Tual. Like Stefan really got the worst, and it, it, it's unjustified. I mean, I guess he had already. He kind of became the fall guy, which is just really sad. Uh, but he had already kind of had tenuous relationships with other people. And he did make huge mistakes at the end uh, when everything was falling apart. So, you know, uh, I think we all had it easy, especially me, because I was publicly known as part of the White Hat group. And, and uh, Left Harris wasn't publicly known as the White Hat group. And, and obviously, Christoph wasn't so involved as a wise decision. Uh, he has family and stuff. I don't have any of those things, you know, so I can be a lot more risky. Yeah. So I had it really easy. There was lots of love being thrown my way and Jordy's way the whole time uh, because we were publicly known as fighting day in and day out to to save the DAO the best that we could. 
And uh, Jody and I actually continued to work together uh, to start a few different orgs. Uh, went to DevCon 2 and all that stuff. But after, I think it was after DevCon, we started Giveth. And uh, we took a lot of the lessons from the DAO. We created a mini-me token contract that kind of, um, uh, you know, took a lot of the learnings that we had uh, and applied them. Okay, if we want to create DAOs for, for a charity that, uh, that could eventually even replace government services, then we're going to need a secure, like people need to be running their own servers and stuff like that. So we found a DAP node. And Jordi is now really focused on doing Z, uh, ZK EVM which is like a, a, a roll-up that you can run a smart contracts on. And I'm still focused on Giveth, and I've also spun out more technical, like token engineering-focused uh, solutions through the Common Stack. And so uh, Giveth is like really pointed at nonprofits, and the Common Stack is trying to uh, take techniques of uh, funding public goods using token engineering and apply it with the nerds of the nerds, kind of applied research. And then uh, we hope to pull that into Giveth. So that's that's what we're working on. So a couple of things. So one thing I want to say is like people should definitely read the book to find out about the Stefan Twell situation. Um, that is chronicled, you know, kind of how people perceived him and and what happened to him. But one thing that I have to say before I ask you guys the next question is just thank you so much for giving me so much of your time and energy to tell the story, you know, as accurately as I could, because it was a lot of time uh, that you guys gave me because obviously just on a technical level, this was probably the, the hardest for sure part of the book that I had to, you know, describe for people. I mean, you know, I'd been covering crypto for years at the point, you know, when I was reporting this and I had never come across a lot of the things that I was having to explain at this part in the book. So, you know, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for helping me with that because, I just would not have been able to do it without your help. Um, okay, so we went through this whole thing together, all these hours of interviews, and you know, I was working on your story. And then the book was going to come out and very, 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 very late in the process when kind of the book was basically done, suddenly there was this break that happened where my sources and I thought that we had figured out who was behind the Dow attack. So I reached out to you all about this and thank you for keeping that secret between then and uh, when the book actually published, because I know that's kind of a long time to keep a secret like that. So when I told you that I thought we had found the person and I presented the evidence, what were your thoughts and feelings? <laughs> okay, let me start then. Yeah, I was surprised. I uh, I never expected to hear about the DAO hacker. I just had given up completely on finding out who it is. Like, to be honest, the subplot that you mentioned for me still is the most stressful part. I just thought, okay, the hacker did what he did. It's just, what you know, okay. But to see the name that you gave there and to remember all our conversations, especially the conversations in Reddit that we had after the hack and during the DAO wars, to actually think that I was talking to the guy who did the actual hack, pretending that he is trying to help us. Oh, wait. So that's what I didn't understand. In the Reddit messages with Toby, is that what you're talking about? You thought that he was trying to help you? Oh, interesting. Because the whatever the original post was, was not clear. Yes, it was probably something about, I don't remember exactly, but some of the attacks that we did and asked him to not go into details or I, I don't really remember
Yeah, but actually, you know what? I came across something where I think this came out after my article came out. It was something about, oh, the I, I think uh, actually, I can't remember where I came across this. I think his idea was to, to break the split mechanism. I think that's what it was. I don't know how I figured this out. I can't remember. This came, I've had the craziest week. So at some point in the last few days, I think I came across this. But anyway. Could be, could be. But we were talking about something and he was giving hints out and uh, he basically gave them to us. No, he gave them uh, in, in public. And I think I told him not to do that. And then he, the last message that I have from him, I think that you even have it in the book was, I'm sorry if I messed things up and that's it. Like in the conversation with the attacker or something like that. I'm sorry if I messed things up for you in the Dow Wars and something like that. It it's did. crazy to actually <laughs> think that this guy pretended to, and he was talking about the hacker in the third person, which of course, like, if you don't want to say that you're the hacker, that's what you do. But um, yeah, I never expected this. I would not have expected this because I don't know. I really thought that the guy who was the hacker would have been, you know, like precision strike, just do his thing, disappear, not stay. And I mean, as you wrote in the thing, he was trolling after uh, he, he was being an, kind of an asshole, right? So I really had the hacker, the original one, in a bit higher regard. Kind of a guy who just did his thing, disappeared. And that's it. Like like Satoshi. But you telling me who Satoshi is. <laughs> yeah. So that's how I felt. <laughs> totally. I, I completely agree. I feel like it almost uh, took away the mystery. That was almost kind of enjoyable to have. You know, oh, no one knows who the hacker is. I still, you know, it's really hard. Uh, I haven't looked at the evidence yet like in depth, I've been in Denver and doing my thing uh, for the conference here. But, you know, it's it's really hard to prove unless someone's unless he straight up says, oh, yeah, it was me. You know, I feel I feel like uh, there's there's still a chance that it could just be some mistake that that he's being thrown under the bus. And I just I hope that's not the case. Uh, and I, it's probably not. Uh, I, I really trust you, Laura, and, and your ability to to, you wouldn't go out without a, a real, a real person. So, but at the time, like when you told me, I just, I don't know. It feels like it feels anticlimactic, honestly. It, it feels like it, I almost wish it were just always going to stay a mystery forever. I didn't have any interac interactions with Toby. Toby was more of a developer, and we really divided and conquers conquered. I worked with the non-development side, so I think Christoph had probably a lot more uh, internal reactions with it. Well, I was also absolutely surprised. I did not expect this to come at all because I know that many people tried to find him. You know, the book by Matt Leisning, who really tried to. And so that's why I thought this is over. There was someone who really, really tried and didn't get find him. So over. For me, it was more, I after the DAO hack, I did actually never care about him at all. Like even during the time um, before the hard fork, it was for me like, okay, this is, Someone did it. I cannot understand why. I don't know him. I, I know that if he is sophisticated enough, technically, he can stay anonymous forever. Um, there are enough to, coins out there which give you the privacy you need. And there are some ways to somehow cash out without um, re revealing your identity. For me, this was like, you will never know him. Also, all the messages we got in between, like between the hack and the hard fork, I never 100% trusted if they were either true or also like, this could completely be played. Like, even if he would say, I will give you the money back. This could be just like an attempt of like making us do no work for another week or so. So that's why I actually completely ignored him. I never tried to go after him. But nevertheless, there were some people actually, even before you, this was 
a couple of months or weeks after the Dow, um, even after the hard fork, which came to us and said they think they know who it is. And they gave us some information from, I think it was from Poloniex, uh, where they tried to find like some return address or some actually who gave the ether to fund the attack. And they gave us some company names. They gave us uh, even some, some, some persons who say they think this is the one. Um, but since I have not seen the evidence myself, I actually said I cannot blame him. I cannot do anything because I don't know. You might, it might be true, maybe not. And I had contact with some of those people. And so I also tried to not blame them, to not like say, are you the hacker? I just completely ignored it. So, and now you say you have much more evidence and I have not seen it personally, but as Chris said, I trust you. Um, that you have done your job, you would not go out with an actual name if you're not 100% sure. So I just hope that, I hope it's true like for you that you don't tell anything which is not right, of course. I hope for him, just the best. I mean, I, I have no feelings whatsoever towards him. And of course, he did something which destroyed a lot. Sometimes I thought about what would happen if he, have, if he wouldn't have done this. And I don't know if something good would have happened. I just don't know. Maybe, yes, it's got big, lots of money in it. Many people get funded by it. Yes. Could also go in a completely wrong direction. And it could be like billions in it today and something I would hate all my life. That's why I somehow was also relieved that the story was over. So I tried to not like, since, since this is out of my control, I basically said, well, I, nothing I can do. I don't understand the background. So I didn't really try to find him or anything. But yes, I was very surprised that you found him. Yeah, this, the best part is that the the people who were originally accused of being the Dow hacker are, are no longer are are like free of that stigma. Yes. I mean, there was there was one conference where Left Terrace never accused. That's the thing. Like, uh, I, I, had, publicly. I probably Not haven't publicly. read about that part of the book yet. It's probably in chapter nine, I guess. Do you mention anything about your your interaction with one of the suspects? Yeah, I wrote about it. I actually have very friendly relations with one of the co-founders of the original uh, company, and he he talked to me and said, "No, no, no, there is no way." Later, like we we came to know each other after that stuff, and I mean the evidence that was shown to us was not really; it was a circumstantial. End. Yeah, sure, but um, as for the particular hacker, the, the, like for, for, for Toby, that was named. Yeah, I'm actually really curious about the technical details of, um, yeah. <laughs> It'd be so cool to see his contract. How you guys uh, found it. Yeah, that would be really interesting. And also, I'm glad that back then we didn't like make it public who we thought it was and also not going to them because those guys actually invited me to a, like a hackathon. They I met him in Berlin. I was like politely declining and didn't want to interact with them too much, but I never like accused them. And I'm very happy for this today that I didn't. So that's why I think also knowing that even people accusing Stefan Tual and even us because they think we know what, what this, this is about. So I'm kind of glad that we have this out, that we know who it is and who it wasn't. I think the who it wasn't is actually even more important. Yeah, definitely. There was this one time where uh, Jordi Lefteris and I are talking to one of the Dow hacker suspects at a conference. And it was it was very civil, but we all... F FCC, like, right? It was yeah, FCC, FCC, the first one. <laughs> We all felt really awkward about it, but they're doing good work. That's the thing. Like, okay. And, and I feel like even with Toby, honestly, like, yes, he destroyed a lot of things, but personally, I hope that nothing bad happens to him because of this, because in the end, everyone, the only people who lost in the Dow were the speculators. As much of the chaos that was there, like everyone who ha had Dow tokens got ETH back plus ETC. Like everyone, it's the only hack I know of where everyone made money. 
except for Slaka, of course, we got really screwed. But uh, everyone, everyone else uh, really made out okay. So I, I guess I, I just hope that, uh, you know, nothing bad happens. He doesn't go to jail or anything. I don't, I don't think it's necessary at this point. It's hard to understand like how we felt back then in terms of like the, the cultural thinking. We never thought about going like to court or asking a lawyer or anyone like this. It was still kind of funny money in some way, even though it had a real exchange course. So it was, it's not as criminal as if someone would have stolen that much in dollar. Like that's how it felt. And you could also understand this position of Codis law and this Bitcoin kind of thinking and kind of even not seeing anything wrong with doing this. Like I can understand this way of thinking. And I think no court, no lawyer, no normal guy out there can understand how we thought back then. That's why I think it's very hard to judge him today based, especially also in the amount, in the amount of money, because you cannot really see how we thought back then, the ideology, the decentralization, all of this. I, I don't know about that, but I have a very, very different opinion there. I am, I never was called this law guy. I never thought that, and I still don't. And there is many instances of, of still of DeFi hacks and... He did something bad. I don't, what he did was bad. I just want to give this perspective how we thought. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. I, I get that. But even back then, I remember I, I still have the DAO code is low, green t-shirt that you gave me, man. Like, this is my reminder of that, of that, of that, that time. I never believed code is low as a developer that scares me. If my code would be, just makes absolutely, I find it nonsensical. I hate the term. And there is people who are using it today. I don't know if you know the index finance hack, this, this, this guy. So people today who steal money from uh, companies and try to use code is law and they are going to court right now uh, in Canada somewhere. Uh, but so, for example, for me, it's a very personal thing after the DAO. And I think that if this field wants to go forward, code can't be law. It's my personal opinion. And uh, I really th uh, hope that basically uh, he gets what he deserves. That's all. Like, I don't know what that means, but uh, I am not a forgiving person. It's not in my nature. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, he, he did take other people's money, and this was, and he did have the opportunity back then to give it back several times, and he did not do this. This is, I think, the most serious part about it. Yeah, he could have uh, done so many. I think that you also mentioned in the book, in the epilogue, uh, like Griff's opinion on that. At least, according to the book, it says that he could have done so much good, and had ample time, like from the time of the hack until the hard fork. So many times we tried to contact, you said there were posts, there were, you know, asking him to come forward, but yeah. He still can send the ETC back to the withdrawal contract, you know, he still could. Wait, wait, there is no withdrawal contract on the Ethereum classic chain. Yeah. So he'd have to the, convert it to the white, the white hats. We, we still have this ETC contract oh, and right, he right, still right, could, right. He, he could still right, deposit right. ETC into it. And then all the DAO token holders could get it back. If anybody is listening from anybody, whoever had the DAO tokens, guys, you have ETC there. You can go take a it. A lot of money is sitting there. It's a lot of money. And we just like, guys, just go take it. It's there. It's waiting for you. Yeah. And by the way, if you are one of those people, please do that. Because I think that Griff is keeping a lot of DAO tokens in order he in order to do any rescues that he might need to do. And he would like to sell those DAO tokens in order to actually use that money for something else. So... Go ahead and take your ETC. Okay, and, and one last thing I want to clarify earlier, just from some of your comments, you know, 
I'm not going to say that I 100% for sure know that it was Toby Honish. You know, what I was saying is the evidence is very good and I presented it all. So, um, you know, I wouldn't present it if I didn't think it was very strong. And the other sources who worked with me on this, they also believe it's strong. And Chainalysis takes credit for that step of the demixing, which obviously that's a very complicated thing to do. And that's their little secret sauce that they, you know, finally revealed to the world. But from all the people who worked with me on this, we feel that the evidence is, is good. Okay. So last bit, this is just a funny, silly question, but people have already been saying things to me like, who should play which characters in the movie? So by the way, just so you know, there is no movie yet, but people are saying this to me. So if that were the case, who would you want to either play you or who do you think should play, you know, the other members of this group? Someone suggested online, not me, that I should be played by, I hope I pronounce it right, Jake Gyllenhaal. Jake Gyllenhaal. <laughs> Gyllenhaal. Yes. It's, some, it's not me. It's someone else on Twitter who proposed this idea. So I'm fine with that. <laughs> Love Harris. Now I reveal my complete lack of knowledge about American film actors. I have absolutely no idea. I know the big names, but I mean, I know, I know, I know Brad Pitt. I know like Bruce Willis, but, but Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise or something like that. I don't know. No. <laughs> yeah, Tom Cruise. No, but Tom Cruise is probably what, like 20 years older than Left Harris? Oh, that's true. Tom, Tom like Cruise from the 80s. Uh, maybe. Yeah, yeah that exactly. <laughs> the one in the underwear sliding on the ground, you know, risky business guy. That's, that's who I think you got. <laughs> okay, Griff, uh, what about you? <laughs> you know, people used to say, and I have a man bun now, but I used to have hair that was like kind of like Ashton Kutcher, and people used to say it looked like Ashton Kutcher. So. <laughs> but you've, you, had a, you wore a man bun during the time of the doubt attack, because I wrote that in the book. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. okay. Okay, but we could, still, we could do Ashton Before Kutcher that. with a man bun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Throw him with a man bun, and, uh, and I, think, I think he'd get the right vibes, too. Okay. All right. Well, you guys, thank you both. Thank you all so much for coming on the show. I'm sorry for some of the traumatic memories that we had to dredge up here, but I think also it was kind of fun to reminisce. It's, it's been a while now, almost six years. So, um, yeah, I hope, I hope this was, yeah, not painful and, and maybe somewhat fun. No, and let's also not forget about all the other people who are not here in the call, like Stefan Tual, Jordi, and many others who have played such an important role here and did so many things, which are very helpful and good. And honestly, we're all so busy people. It's just really nice to be in the same room with you guys. It's been too long. Likewise. Yeah, likewise. It's, it's really nice to see like uh, the, the two of you here, like uh, see your faces. I haven't seen you in well, quite a long time. Yeah, it's like a reunion of old war buddies, you know? <laughs> okay. All right. Well, thank you all for coming on Unchained. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, thank you. Laura. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about my book, The Cryptopians, Idealism, Greed, Lies, and the Making of the First Big Cryptocurrency Craze, and also to learn about the Dow episode and to learn about a person that my sources and I believe is a Dow attacker, check out the show notes for this episode. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, Mark Murdoch, Shashank, and CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening.